Welcome. This is Jerry Rogers. Uh, I'm really excited to have a writer on today. It's uh, somebody we have published on Artemis Journal. And actually, this is his second interview we've had with him because he wrote another book, co-authored another book. Uh, we'll get into all that. But Jack Greer has been writing for most of his adult life. Uh, his nonfiction writing is focused on water and especially on the Chesapeake Bay. For more than 30 years, he wrote about and got engaged in marine affairs for the University of Maryland C. Grant College. His first short story collection is Abraham's Bay and Other Short Stories. It was published in 2009. Uh, the Montserrat Review said the collection uh, said this about the collection, that Greer is a wonderful storyteller and a poetic, powerful writer. Sailing Magazine said the stories are haunting as we sail into cold fronts, storms, and hearts of darkness. Greer attempts to convey what a veteran sea captain and writer Joseph Conrad said, Above all, I want to make you see. The magazine Cruising World wrote, quote, A good book. Grab a hot toddy and prepare for the ride. Greer's poetry has also appeared in small magazines, including the Beltway Journal, where he most recently contributed a poem to a collection honoring Langston Hughes. And our journal, Artemis Journal, uh, published his poem, Flowers for Heather Heyer. His work has won acclaim for his writing, as well as citations from the governor of Maryland and the University of Maryland for his environmental work around the Chesapeake Bay. He's got a loaded resume, and we're thrilled to have you here today, Jack. Welcome to Artemis Speaks. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. We, um, we know your work. Like I said, uh, Artemis Journal has published your poetry, and we'll get into that in a little bit. But you have written mostly a lot about water. You're a sailor. You have a sailboat. Uh, what, what inspired you to fall in love with water? How did all that begin? That's a great question. Um, if, if you don't mind, I, I would like to read the first two paragraphs of my preface to the short story collection. Perfect. I sort of get into that a little bit. That's a great way to start. Yes. Great. So it says, um, the wind first found me when I, was, when I was about 12 years old on the shores of the York River on the southern Chesapeake Bay. There, my grandmother built a small cottage where we spent every summer. I didn't really know my father's side of the family. He left when I was three. But my mother's mother gave me a place where the wind could reach me. On summer nights without a flashlight, I walked through soggy bottomland down to my grandmother's dock and sat dangling my legs over dark water. A night breeze often blew from the south. 
a soft breath from far off. The wind came from beyond the river mouth, from beyond the bay. It was a wind born offshore, a sea wind. It carried the sweet smells of the Atlantic and more. It brought the breathing air of faraway lands. It whispered the promise of what rides on the wind itself. It called from where the wind begins. Lovely. So the water and the wind uh, go back a long way with me. And in fact, even before I was 12 years old um, to when we uh, first started going to my grandmother's cabin. And, um, you know, it's interesting. There was a study done by these two researchers, Hungerford and Volk from uh, Southern Illinois University, um, who tried to answer the question, why do some people care about the environment or the water in this case uh, and others don't? And one thing they found was that for people who really had a deep connection to the environment, they uh, often had a very intense experience as youngsters in nature with a, uh, very often with a mentor of some kind, uh, a parent or a teacher or a counselor, sort of an older person. And uh, that sensitized them, if that's you know, the word they use, to uh, future encounters with nature and, and imbued it with a deeper meaning, uh, especially for them, you know, going back to their early memories. And for me, my uh, mentor, I guess, was my older sister, who is about five and a half years older than I am. And uh, so when she was, say, going on 13, you know, I would have been uh, about eight. And uh, I remember very well when we built a raft. It was our first craft that we ever had. It was made of some old inner tubes and some uh, boards that were left over from the construction of this cottage that my grandmother built. Uh, unfortunately, the boards had nails sticking out of them, which was not great for an inner tube boat. <laughs> but uh, anyway, we set out. This was my first venture at sea. You know, we set out from the shore. And I think we were looking for a sandbar that might have been created by Hurricane Hazel, which had come through there. Um, at any rate, we were getting away from shore, which I found um, a little scary. Um, but we couldn't find the sandbar. So my sister said I needed to jump overboard to test the depth. Um, so um, <laughs> she told me I had to do this because I was the man. Oh. So, uh, <laughs> so I agreed. <laughs> And uh, I jumped, and I think she may have pushed me a little bit uh, overboard, and under I went. It was, turned out to be over my head, so we had not definitely got, not, not gotten to the sandbar yet. And I found myself pretty much standing on the bottom of the river, unable to get up to the surface. So I was sort of standing there looking at the surface of the river, but at that point, I really couldn't swim. Because um, that was... Strange. Um, and then I saw this board appear from which one of the boards that she used for a paddle. And I uh, reached out and grabbed the board and she to the surface and I came gasping up to our raft. And uh, she was amazed to learn that I, I couldn't touch the bottom. And then, and then she said, you know, you could have drowned. And I was <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> and uh, 
anyway, after she, uh, I caught my breath, she said, um, well, you know what that means, don't you? It means I saved your life. And one day you'll have to save mine. <laughs> um, so that was my first sort of baptism in the waters of the Chesapeake Bay. And um, when I got older, at the age of 12, um, I really did begin to connect with the water more. And I went to a summer camp where I was the counselor most interested in sailing. They had a little penguin sailboat, about 11 foot long, cat rigged dinghy. And uh, during my free choice hour, I would go out in the penguin and I would sail up and down the creek, Sturgeon Creek. And it was amazing to me that, of course, I was much too young to have a driver's license at that point, but I was entirely under my own control and I could just point the boat wherever I wanted to go, uh, driven entirely by the wind. And uh, from that point on, I was hooked on sailing. So, and on the water. So ever since then, I've, uh, yeah, I've been a bit of a water rat. Well, I loved your book, uh, Abraham's Bay. Uh, and I'm not a sailor, but I got totally engrossed in your stories. They're kind of scary at times, almost like your sister pushing you over. And, and she said, by the way, she saved your life, but she almost killed you, too. Right. <laughs> so you might remind her of that. But right. anyhow, you you weren't. Set, setting out to become a writer. You've spoken about a turning point in your life where you had originally thought you'd become a lawyer, heaven forbid. <laughs> but, <laughs> actually, I just say that because I'm married to a lawyer right. and I, I love lawyers. Actually, I love my husband. But what caused you to call uh, this point in your life a crisis where you decided not to go to law school? Right. Um well, you're right that, you know, when I was in the eighth grade, I determined um, that I was going to be a lawyer. My, my big sister used to call me the midget lawyer at that point. Um, mm. And I stuck with that plan right on up, up through college. And uh, I majored in English pretty much as a pre-law major. I was supposed to be a good major for getting ready for law school. But then um, three things happened. Uh, the first was the 1960s, um, which is when I was in college. And uh, there were a lot of changes there and a lot of changes in me at that time. Um, and my first job out of college was teaching in an all-black school in uh, Appomattox, Virginia. Uh, and this was right before integration. Uh, so the school I was teaching in, Carver Price, um, went from grades K through 12, you know, everyone was in the same school. And then um, while I was still teaching in the county, uh, integration came and I was then uh, moved, I, actually I stayed in the same school, but it was then changed to Appomattox Middle School. And um, it was a real life experience for me because I, uh, I sort of came to the integrated school from the black school, not from the white school uh, even though I was white myself. So I had a, a good connection with the students there and it was uh, a life experience. So that kind of thing uh, led me more toward, um, I guess, social kinds of things. Um, then the second thing that happened though was while I was preparing for law school, I actually began to be affected by this literature that I was reading, you know, literature from American literature but also European literature, 
the continent, uh, you know, Franz Kafka and Thomas Mann and many others. And so that really changed my, um, my inner focus, if you will, to things more literary, which had not really been my plan. But at that time, I really began thinking more seriously, um, not only about reading, but writing. Uh, and then the third thing that happened was this crisis moment that you referred to, uh, the most gut-wrenching, I guess, of my, of my moltings, uh, like a crab, you know. Um, and that happened in graduate school in my mid-20s when we were living in graduate housing, which was basically a uh, roach-infested apartment on a very busy road uh, inside the D.C. Beltway. And uh, my wife and I, by that time, had a small son, and we were living on almost no money. I think my uh, assistantship at the time was $3,600 per academic year, um, which is not a lot for a family to live on. And I began to really kind of question my, my decisions and have a lot of self-doubts about who I was. I really sort of lost sight of, of who I was. And um, I began to suffer these terrible anxiety attacks. Anybody who's been through an anxiety attack knows it's a pretty painful experience. And um, I went through a sort of prolonged period of that and insomnia and just generally uh, suffering what the, what the French call a crise. Um, and you know, I really wasn't able at that point to do the kind of reading and teaching and lecturing that I was supposed to be doing as a doctoral student and a doctoral teaching assistant. So um, at the end of that semester, I dropped out of the graduate program, and I really felt like I, I needed to work with my hands. You know, I needed to be in touch with something really concrete, and um, I also needed to be I decided nearer the, the waters that were most healing for me, which were the rivers of the Chesapeake Bay. So my wife and I and our small son moved to this little cottage down by the Road River in Maryland. And uh, we ended up living there for eight years. And uh, I went to work at a boatyard. And so every day I spent my days uh, sawing and drilling and cutting wood. And um, I learned a lot of things there. Uh, life lessons, uh, but also very practical things that helped me later when my both my wife and I bought several uh, old sailboats and fixed them up and began our, our cruising life. And then uh, at the same time, I began writing about the Chesapeake Bay for um, magazines and newspapers. And uh, at the University of Maryland, it turned out they were just starting a program in uh, focused on the Chesapeake Bay research, education, and outreach. And they were looking for a writer to write about Chesapeake Bay research. And I thought, oh man, this is uh, made for me, you know? And so I applied for the job and I got it. And I eventually went back and finished my doctorate at the same time. And uh, for many years, I, as you said, I spent my time focused on Chesapeake Bay policy and education uh, and writing writing about the bay. So in some ways, the bay almost killed me, but in the end, it saved me. 
and it launched your career, your writing career. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's exciting. Um, you know, I know it was painful, but sometimes it's, you know, you've got to suffer like that to really get what you need to do, and you got it. And, uh, you know, I've, I've, like I said, I really enjoyed Abraham, Abraham's Bay book. Uh, that, that just was such a great insight into the world of sailing. I'm not a sailor, but, uh, you know, I, I often question why people go through all that just to get out on the water and maybe die because of a storm or <laughs> whatever. But it's a thrill. Obviously, I've learned so much through your book, and, and thank you for sharing that. Um, what, you know, we, we wanted to... Uh, start out this interview on a positive note. Uh, you, we have published your poem, Flowers for Heather Higher. And, uh, you know, at the time when we talked a month or so ago, there hadn't been any resolution in the Charlottesville trial. And uh, let's, let's, you know, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I think it's very important uh, that you wrote this poem that we published uh, this was right after the Charlottesville riots with the neo-Nazi right-wing groups that came in and stormed Charlottesville. Uh, so can you just give us some insight as to what motivated you, besides writing your short stories and books, you decided to write a poem about Heather Heyer? Yes, exactly. Um, well, it's interesting. The other night I saw... Um, Heather Heyer's mother, Susan Bro, on television, and she she was wonderful, of course. Um, and one thing she said was that she didn't want people to idealize her daughter because she was, after all, a real person, just like you and me. You know, um, she wasn't an idol, and uh, and I understand that uh, very well. Uh, we don't want her to become dehumanized, you know, by idealizing her. But um, for me. Uh, this poem was very personal. I didn't really uh, set out to write this in the beginning. Um, but first of all, I, I watched television like so many of us did with these torch-bearing guys, uh, mainly guys, um, marching through the grounds of the University of Virginia where I got my college degree. And for me, that that landscape, you know, the, the grounds there, it's where I showed up when I was a bright-eyed 18-year-old, and that's where I learned uh, many of the values that I still have today. And to see these people marching through there, chanting these uh, anti-Semitic chants um, was sickening to me. I, I posted on Facebook that very night about that, and uh, it really got me at a very personal level and then, of course, the next morning, the next day, um, all their horrible rantings turned violent, and, and Heather Heyer was a victim of that. And um, my wife and I felt like we really ne needed to do something, and so we got in our car and drove to Charlottesville and uh, bought some flowers and uh, took them to the place where Heather Heyer had been hit by the car, and of course, there were a lot of other flowers there and other mementos. Um, and when I got home from that, I uh, that vision of that spot where she had been killed, I just 
really stayed with me. And so that's where the poem uh, emerged. Um, again, it was, it was very, it was personal to my own time in Charlottesville, but of course focused entirely on this moment of uh, pure hatred, really uh, a kind of ugliness that we're seeing in our society right now, which is quite frankly, hard to understand and fathom. Um, there's so much anger out there and often this kind of anger gets directed at people who are uh, easy to scapegoat or, you know, well, unarmed people, for example. Uh, and so, um, yeah, that's, how, that's why I wrote the poem. And uh, we know that they had a civil lawsuit against a lot of the organizers and these organizations with these people carrying tiki torches and, and you know, slurring anti-Semitic um, phrases. Uh, but they had a, a civil case in which uh, some of the victims brought the leaders of the of the organizations that helped start this riot and um, they got what 25 million dollar uh, judgment slapped against them against the individuals and their organizations so you know the wheels of justice can turn really slowly at times but there was seems to be, uh, not was, but there seems to be, you know, a, a, a good ending to this in that maybe these organizations might be bankrupted. You know, of course, they've got to collect it. Good luck there. But you wrote this poem, and I don't know if you would like to share that, if you have it with you. Do you could you uh, read the poem? I, I do. Um, I'd be happy to do that. And, and I would just add that the... Um, it's amazing that it was the state statute that really made the difference in that case. And um, we do hope that that kind of large uh, financial burden will prevent people from doing this kind of thing in the future. They'll have to think twice about it right. because it will, it will bankrupt them, I think. Yeah. We can hope. But I'd, I'd be happy to read this poem. It's called uh, Flowers for Heather Heyer. Five decades gone since I picked yellow flowers from our unmown lawn. Five guys in a rented house. We had no vases. I stuck daffodils in a beer bottle placed on my bedside table. It was, I remember, a Michelob bottle, brown, shapely enough. The spring my draft notice came when I grew my hair long and we marched for peace and love Yesterday, we brought flowers to that same college town, my wife and I. Pink roses, store-bought, dainty in their plastic veil. We placed them on 4th Street, on the pavement. There a pile of flowers lay scattered on asphalt, as delicate as youth. Handwritten notes stuck among petals spoke of peace and love. And beneath them, the tracks, tire tracks, the wax of melted candles, and a generation's silent screams. Wow. Thank you, Jack. It's very moving. Uh, and I really, really am proud that we published that poem. Thank you for submitting it. 
Well, we're going to conclude this interview. It's been great having a conversation with you, Jack. There's, I feel like there's so much more we could talk about, but our time, unfortunately, has run out. Uh, how can people find your books, and do you have a website? I do have a website. It's just uh, Greer, J-A-C-K-G-R-E-E-R, altogether, uh, .net. And uh, the books are available on Amazon. That's probably the easiest way for most folks to get them. Um, they're also uh, being carried locally at some places uh, in Harrisonburg nearby. For example, the Oasis Gallery is carrying... Uh, both Abraham's Bay and the other book that we had talked about once, um, Better With Age. Uh, both those books are available there, but they're both available on, on Amazon as well. Well, they're well worth reading, and I encourage our audience to seek them out. Thank you, Jack, uh, for joining us today, and I thank our audience, wherever you may be, for coming in and listening to uh, Jack's story. This is a bi-monthly podcast uh, featuring published artists and writers from the Artemis Journal. Previous podcasts are archived on, on our website and can be found at www.artemisjournal.org slash podcast. This podcast was recorded at Final Track Studios along with Skip Brown, my co-producer, who makes all this happen. He's a magician. And... Ah, until next time, I'm going to leave you with this thought by Mark Twain. Writing is easy. All you have to do is cross out the wrong words. Amen. Aha. <laughs> uh-huh. Okay. Thank you, Jack, for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure. You've been listening to Artemis Speaks. Artemis is a charitable organization now 43 years old and has evolved to be all-inclusive, a journal with essays, poetry, and art. 10% of the journal's sales are donated to a woman's shelter in Southwest Virginia. If you're interested in learning more, artemisjournal.org. You can mail us directly, P.O. Box 505, Floyd, Virginia, 24091. The closing music and the opening music you're listening to is Jordan Harmon, and the song is Just Slow Down, a very appropriate comment for the times that we're in. If you want to read, you have to slow down. Artemis Speaks, the podcast, is recorded twice monthly at Final Track Studios in Roanoke, Virginia. All rights reserved and is co-produced by Jerry Rogers and Skip Brown.
yes, you know you gotta be yourself. Cause yourself is all you got, and all you got is what you need. Look in the mirror, see it clearer. The answer's staring at you. So just slow down in life Because you can't buy back your time And you know you can't lose touch Of those things That you love so much So much. So just slow down if you've got to, baby. Just slow down if you've got to. Just slow down if you've got to, baby. Just slow down. Yeah, just slow down if you've got to, baby. Just slow down if you've got to. Just slow down if you've got to, baby. Just slow down. Just slow down if you've got to, baby. Just slow down if you've got to. Just slow down if you've got to, baby. Just slow down. Just slow down if you've got to, baby. Just slow down if you've got to. Just slow down if you've got to, baby. Just slow down.